So, yeah, so in case, if you've been, and I would love it if you were, if you were, uh, like, reading through the book of Hebrews all the way through with us as we kind of journey through it, because we're just doing small chunks in terms of our readings. I just want you to be aware that really 5.11 through 6.20 is kind of all one section, and it kind of goes together, and it'll keep you um, locked in on what he's actually doing. Um, so let me start by telling you a little a little update, a little story from recently in our home, in the Salyer home. Uh, my two-year-old, Wynn, she, um, she's been doing this thing lately. When After she goes down for, for bed, she gets up at some point in the middle of the night, typically comes into our room uh, and pesters us, wanting a snack or something to drink. You know, this is this the kind of thing that two-year-olds do. Uh, and after four or five nights of this, man, it's just... You know, you get sick of it as a parent. That's not shocking, probably, for you to think through and understand. Some of you are parents, and you get that. But it's also a bit nervy for us because Winnie will also do things like get up in the middle of the night, and then she'll just go downstairs. Uh, And I don't know, you know, literally, the Lord only knows what she is doing. (laughs) So um, what we did is we put one of those, like, baby-proof things on the doorknob. You know, you know what I'm talking about, parents? You know what I'm saying? The thing that locks on and then it just like spins. So um, that worked until it didn't. <laughs> well, it worked, but it had a backfiring kind of effect. So just the other night, I come up, she, we put her down. She didn't want to go down. She's screaming. She's mad. She immediately comes to the door. Uh, can't open it. After we let her go for a bit, don't judge us. I'm telling you this story. I'm trying to be practice vulnerability, so do not judge me at any point during this story. <laughs> so uh, we, we wait a little bit. Finally, it's like she's not getting it. She's just not. So we need to go in. Well, I go upstairs, and Melissa, my wife, is standing at the door, and she's just looking at me like this is not good. And what? So there's like a little hole inside the baby-proof thing. And she has found a way to stick her little fingers through there and lock the doorknob. Right, right, right. So we can't get in. So she's in there screaming, you know, that she wants out. And I'm trying to get in. But I, so I'm like, so at that, so I spend what felt like forever. I'm trying to explain to her, be calm, right? Take a deep breath. Listen to me. You have to. Turn the little thing, just the little knob thingy, you know? You have to turn it. And she's just, like, screaming, I can't see you, Dad, you know? <laughs> and at one point, and I can tell she's got this little stool in her room, so I'm saying, turn the thing, and she is picking up her stool and turning it around. <laughs> and I'm yelling under the door. You know, you can picture me, like, on my knees, like, yelling, you know? When? please, listen, listen, you know, and she's climbing up in her bed, and she's screaming. Um, It only actually probably lasted 10 or 15 minutes, but it felt like a really long time, and I just didn't want to break the door down, you know, so finally, I actually picked the lock, so that was pretty cool, (laughs) and uh, and was able to get her out, so it was just a very futile thing. She could not... She was too wound up, she was unable to focus, and she could not pay attention to what I was saying to do. She did not lack the intelligence, clearly. You understand? This is important. 
She didn't lack intelligence to do it. She locked it. Obviously, she has the intelligence to... She lacked the ability to pay attention in the moment and listen carefully. Now, here's my point, right? The point of this entire sermon um, and what I think what really stands out in the text and what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Please listen. Attention. Attention is everything. Your attention is everything. Um, The ability to sustain your attention on something or someone that matters will shape you dramatically. What you attend to the most what you attend to the most will shape you. This is why, of course, like scientists now are, there's all sorts of stuff. You guys know this. You're not dummies. You get it. Like, there's all this crazy stuff coming out about social media and how we're just more angry and more depressed and more anxious the more time we spend attending to it. It shapes us. It will have an effect on you, what you pay attention to. So the author of Hebrews has been stressing this point, if you've been following with us. He's been stressing this point. This is a book. The book of Hebrews is about endurance. It's about uh, hope. It's about Jesus. Uh, My friend Dan was talking about this last week. Um, He's the source. Jesus is the source of endurance, of our endurance. He's the source of our hope. He's the reason to get out of bed in the morning. Honestly, especially particularly if you have a life that's full of suffering. Um, No matter the circumstances, the ability to keep fighting for faith, the ability to keep fighting for love, the ability to keep fighting for justice, uh, the ability to fight, ironically, for your peace and your joy, Jesus is the reason and the basis for that. To endure, you have to consider Jesus. But the thing is, is, and this is what I'm trying to say, it's not just enough about knowing about him and what he's done. You have to sustain your attention on Jesus. Like, you have to pay attention. You have to train yourself. You have to train your mind to sustain attention on him. That's what Hebrews is getting at. The key to a robust and thoroughly holistic Christian life and this is something I've just been learning over my lifetime, it's not so much a focus on what you are doing. And please, please, hear me when I say that. The key to a very thoroughly, all the way to the bottom, all the way to the bottom, a whole kind of hearted Christianity, the key to that is not to focus so much on what you are doing or not doing. The key is to focus and pay attention to what Jesus has done and what he might be doing right now in your midst. That's how it works. That's how the economy of God's grace works. Our attention upon him, and don't, some of you might be looking at me thinking, but he's saying what I do doesn't matter. No, what I'm saying is what you do will be greatly influenced By paying attention to Jesus, focusing all of your attention upon him and what he's completed on our behalf and what he might be doing right now, even with my broken microphone. I want you to take this 
idea of attention very seriously today. The book of Hebrews is a message saying that your endurance as a Christian is based on you paying attention to the condition of your soul and the goodness of what Jesus has done. This book, this Hebrews, this book, it labors over this issue of listening and paying attention. Like a, like a nagging parent would labor over uh, a, a child's manners or their, their messy room or something like that. It's just a nonstop issue for him. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine you're sitting here. And maybe you've heard me preach many, many times before. Imagine that this is how I started my sermons. Good morning. Peace be with you. I've got so much to unpack today in the text, but I can't. I can't get to it. You know why? Because you don't listen anymore and you don't pay attention. Would this offend you? Maybe. Probably. Maybe rightfully so that would be offensive to you. What's fascinating is, is that is exactly what this pastor says. This ancient pastor loves this house church or group, group of house churches, depending on how we think of this uh, book of Hebrews. And he is so, he loves them so much and he is so concerned about them and their, the conditions of their souls. That's how he speaks. Uh, look for yourself. This is chapter 5, verse 11. He just cuts right into the middle of what he's doing, and he says this. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. That's the text. It's not a weird translation. I don't care which one you use. NLT, NIV, ESV, I don't care. They're all going to be something like that. That's what he says. Well, about what? He says about this, we have much to say. About what? Well, if you were here last week, or you were able to listen to it, or... Um, uh, our friend Dan was talking about like the high priest and he was unpacking that and this is what he's trying to get into. He's going to continue to get into this. He's going to continue to talk about this idea of Jesus as our high priest. Jesus as our perfect mediator. Uh, but he interrupts his train of thought because he realizes that they are really poor listeners. They don't pay attention and he talks about how, you know, you guys should really be teachers by now. You should be more mature than you are by now. He, so he clearly knows them very well. And he's discouraged that even though they have been around the gospel, they have heard the gospel for many years, he is shocked at how immature they still are. Like, they're, they're still not even able to make basic right and wrong decisions in their life. And he's, he's concerned about this. And he's trying to wake them up. He's trying, he's trying to show them... You know, through all these Old Testament stories, these Old Testament rituals and heroes of their, you know, of their ancestry, they're all symbols. Uh, they're all pointing to Jesus and the beauty of Jesus, and he's so good at it. I mean, the book of Hebrews is such a highbrow theological book, really, because you just get uh, trained up in all of the Old Testament by going through it. And he's trying to spur them on, and he's trying to show them this, and he's concerned um, that they just don't care about these truths that they don't get it. And so he's brutally honest with them. But if you saw in the section we read, he, he does love them and he thinks very highly of them, right? Um, he's got great confidence in them and that's why he's a truth teller. He's just a brutally honest truth teller. If you don't have truth tellers in your life, get one. I just experienced something very similar to this recently. In our staff, we've been doing this exercise where... Um, we, we go around the table, uh, the staff, 
and, and I started us off. This is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And it's, okay, you have to hear from everyone as to, we start with a gentle thing. What, what is one unique contribution that you make to the environment and to the team that everybody wants you to keep doing? This is all set up. Because the next question is, is what is one of the negative contributions that you make that, I, that is really difficult for us and we want you to work on and change? Anybody want to do that exercise? And so I led off. They did me first. So I had to hear from all the staff, what is something that I do that makes it very difficult to participate in their work and ministry here in the Oaks? And it was a gift, man. It was a gift. Not because they sugarcoated it, because they didn't. But they love me, they care, they weren't being mean about it, and they want to they work it out. Truth tellers, get truth tellers in your life that will be brutally honest with you, that will all be able to hold it in balance with you, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. He's not trying to hurt their feelings. I want to be really clear. We've become somewhat of a fragile culture, which I won't get into today. He's not trying to hurt their feelings. He's, he is so in love with them and concerned for them. He's just being honest. Are you getting lazy in your pursuit and attention upon Jesus? That's what he takes up in this bit that we read. And he's trying to motivate them back into a place of learning and maturing. And this is all a rhetorical device, this whole section in the end of chapter 5 and into 6. Um, we can't be sure of what their daily lives look like. We have to only guess at it. But whatever it was, it, something else was occupying their attention, and, and it was not creating spiritual growth for them. And unlike many of God's people, but, but both back then and now today as well, he does not take spiritual idleness um, as a minor issue. He thinks it's a really big deal. He thinks that when you get spiritually dull, when you, get, when, you, when you lack attention upon Jesus, when you lack attention upon the word, when you lack attention upon prayer, he takes that really seriously. Now, here's the thing. I, I think, I thought about this all week, um, because when you look up sections like this, chapter 6 of Hebrews, and you look for sermons on it, good luck. It's just not hard, it's, or it's not easy to find. And the ones that you find sometimes come from very angry preachers. And so I want to say, I think it's probably a good thing that we normalize, like, spiritual idleness. I think we should normalize that. Like, who hasn't experienced it? And if, you, if you're like, I've never experienced it, you're lying Everybody, if you follow Jesus long enough, you get to this place. Um, I was raised in the church. So, I mean, I've had, I've had so many experiences where the, the reading of the word or prayer, uh, sensing or feeling God's presence, these sorts of things, like it just seems distant. Uh, or, or, I, I, maybe I, or even I heap the blame on myself. And I'm like, so I get it, and I want to normalize that. I think it's important to normalize that. 
But here's the thing. Normalizing spiritual idleness, a lack of attention upon God, normalizing it and trivializing it are two very different things. Right? Like cancer. Cancer, unfortunately, is a a normal part of what it means to be a human being. Like we get cancer. Many of us get cancer. Do we trivialize it? Like, is it an unimportant thing when someone gets cancer? No. So, in the same way, the book of Hebrews is saying, listen, when you get to a place, when you find yourself in a place where you're not paying attention to Jesus, it's, it's part of the normal human condition. It stretches all the way back to people like this. Don't trivialize this. Where are you? Where's your head space? Where's your heart? It's not a trivial matter. It's a matter of the most importance. And he wants to strike that seriousness in them, which is why he gets, he gets harsh. He, he gets just downright in, in their face and in our face. I mean, this whole section in chapter 6 is really in your face about people drifting away from Jesus and, 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 and finding themselves in a place where they can't even be restored back to repentance. And we just hate these passages in the Bible. And it's like, what does this mean? Uh, and it's these passages that the Bible scholars uh, love to debate over, and they create little tribes and cliques, and even they, they help shape their denominations um, around these kinds of passages. Because what do we do with it, right? What do we do with these passages? Like, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's like, can we go back to the Psalms? It's tough. But the point, when you keep it all in context, I want you to hear is this. The whole point of this is he's drawing their attention to the reality that every day there are people who sit in their little church gatherings with them. They witness God moving in people's lives. They hear the gospel message preached. They sing the songs with them. They even participate in communion. But ultimately, they have a sustained, planned, thoroughly, thorough rejection of Jesus as Savior, there is no fruit in their lives, and they refuse to change, and they will not change. And he is saying they are sitting right next to you sometimes. And how does that make you feel? And it gives you a sense of sobriety. That's what he's doing. It's a rhetorical device. To be clear, he's not accusing them of this. He clearly states it. He says this in uh, this chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, this terrifying way, this harsh way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Like, this isn't you, but you need to be aware that it's around all the time. The whole warning is a rhetorical device to draw them back to a place of humble attention. This is the goal throughout the book. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The Apostle Paul will say things like this all the time. Here's just a couple examples. This is Galatians 6.1. He says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. 
First Thessalonians 5, 6, he says this, Then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. These are all passages about paying attention. Attention. Again, in a, in a life of discipleship to Jesus, intelligence is not what is being asked of. That's great news for people like me that are a little slow on the uptake. Intelligence is not the issue. It's attention. A, a genuine curiosity in the condition of your soul and who Jesus is. And Jesus is like, you, you have that? Oh, that's all you need. That's all you need. Attention is everything. Uh, you know, the great late pastor, writer, Eugene Peterson, was once asked in an interview, uh, what does it mean to experience all the material of our lives as an act of faith? That was a line that he wrote, and so the person was asking him, what does that mean when you say that? And this was his answer. And it means this, that I'm responsible for paying attention to the Word of God right here in this locale. The assumption of spirituality is that God is always doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to it and participate and take the light in it. Dallas Willard famously said this, the first act of love is always the giving of attention. There's probably married folks in the room right now sitting next to their spouse going, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Attention, that's all I'm asking of you. Pay attention. There are so many ways, friends, to love God, but none so close to his heart and so important for our formation as giving him our fullest attention. And I think it's as simple as things like prayer. It's as simple as things like looking and studying the word and even making attempts to understand what it's saying to us. Sometimes it just means looking out at the created world and admiring things and giving God thanks for it. I think we give attention to him when we sit down and try to eat a meal and we say, God, you you provided it. Thank you. Sometimes you just sit in silence and you don't even know what to say. And you just say, Jesus, I am here. And I don't have anything else to say. Attention to him, particularly when it's confusing, particularly when it's mysterious or hard, is such a good practice. And I think he is well pleased with us when we do it. Obedience to God throughout the scriptures is this idea of trusting and following. It all flows from attention. This is why the Jews, when you read the Old Testament and you see all this stuff for us as Western modern people, we think this is so weird. All these festivals, all these rituals, all these practices, it's all centered around numbers and sequences like seven. And what is going on? You know what it's all about? Keeping them attentive. It's the whole point. To remember, pay attention. Don't lose, don't drift. It has been... These um, writers like Eugene Peterson, like Dallas Willard, that have schooled me, schooled me, and are still schooling me 
in my work as a pastor, and I'm just being honest with you about that. They have schooled me in what I think my job is as a pastor. What do you think my job is as a pastor? It is not, hear me, it is not primarily to run a church. And I believe that running a church is a really important thing. And I help with that task to a certain extent. But that is not the primary, that is not my primary vocation. That is not my primary calling. It's not about learning and solving the complicated relational dynamics in people's families and people's friendships. Although, again, sometimes that happens, and that's okay. It is, however, my task, primarily, my task is about helping us keep attention on Jesus and his gospel. That is the work of a pastor. That is my work. The second I stop doing that is when you should fire me. It's about remembrance of him and keeping attention to him today in the current circumstances we find ourselves in. The world is crazy. It's a beautiful, mysterious place. And every day, friend, is a battle for your attention. People are spending billions of dollars to get your attention the quality of your life and the condition of your soul, the peace and the joy that you want, that is unshakable, that we are promised in the Scripture, is all predicated on are we attentive to God today? Why should we pay such close attention? I mean, let's not assume anything. I'm saying one thing today, right? Pay attention Why should we pay such attention to God? I'll tell you why. Because God is so attentive to you. Unbelievably so. God is graciously attentive to you. You know, the poet, the the, the warrior, the king, David in the Old Testament, he made some pretty serious mistakes that I'm sure some of you are aware of over his lifetime. Huge mistakes. But his overwhelming quality was his attention to God. That's what he did so well. He spent many hours in caves with candles lit, praying and singing and writing poetry to God. He was obsessed with this idea of paying attention to God. In Psalm 8, verse 3 through 4, he says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David is able to sit and meditate on the profound fact that God is not only creates things like stars, but also is able to pay attention to him and care for his daily needs. He's shocked by that. God, you pay attention to me. And the fascinating thing about God is, is his attention, uh, is, it's not just that he's looking at you, paying attention to you, it's that he's gracious and good. He's really gracious about it. Notice, the, the, the author of Hebrews says this uh, in chapter 6, verse 10, For God is not unjust, not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Just sit with that. God is not going to ignore or forget the work that you are putting in. Not a single thing that you've done in your cleaning your serving, 
you're giving, you're forgiving of people, your ability to drop bitterness, to fight for reconciliation, these things that we do, these thoroughly Christian things that you do that are difficult and you get tired of doing them, God remembers. He will not let go of it. Not a single thing. But consider this for a friend. If, if, if that's not encouraging enough to you, consider this fact. The opposite is true of your sin. God has a strange selective memory. Although God's memory is impeccable, it's selective. Jeremiah 31, which the author of Hebrews will quote uh, when he gets to chapter 8, he speaks of this new covenant that's coming, this new promise the covenant that we are under now, the new covenant. We are the new covenant people. And he says this, quote, I will, this is God, this is God talking. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Wait. So let, let's get this straight because you don't have a single human being in your life that does this. God chooses chooses to remember every good thing you do. But because of Jesus, his son, he chooses to forget every bad thing. He will not remember it. Does he, does he see it? Oh, yeah, he sees it. And he says, I'm not going to remember that. I'm going to overlook it. Who does that in your life? Because you have people that hold on to all the wrongs that you've committed. You have someone right now in your life who is deeply bitter with you. They can't let go of it. And they may even be trying. They may be trying very hard to let go of it. But they do not possess this ability. God does. By his own divine love and choice. Because of the Son who absorbs it all. For those trusting and following in Jesus, God is paying attention and keeping record of how you love him and how you love your neighbor. And although he sees when we slip up and when we fail, he chooses to overlook it. What kind of God does that? You see, it's the kindness of God. It's the love and grace of God that should draw our attention. Attention to God will often um, uh, feel like waiting. I've been thinking a lot about this, and and the author of Hebrews brings this up a lot. Uh, Waiting. Waiting in silence. Waiting in confusion. Waiting even in suffering. Honestly, in in, in many ways, to just be a Christian means to be someone who waits. (laughs) We're just waiting for God. But here's the thing. He's worth it. God is worth it us waiting, sitting, paying attention to him, even when things seem chaotic or uncertain. He has this track record that proves it. And the author of Hebrews draws their attention and ours to Abraham and the promises that he received centuries ago. We read about this. The story can be found in Genesis 12. That's where it kind of gets started. We read out of Genesis 17, but it all really begins in Genesis 12. It's, it's there that God calls Abraham out of his home to a new land, some of you are familiar with this. This is a really big, big story, a big deal for the, for the Bible. And God makes him this promise, and that promise is to bless him with descendants, even though he's, you know, 70-something, 80 years old at the time. Bless him with descendants. 
And those descendants will turn into a nation. Out of that nation, God will provide a way to bless, and this is quote, I'm quoting it, all the families of the earth. That extends all the way to you right now, your family. When you read through Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that calling of Abraham and this promise of blessing to him, the word bless will pop up over and over and over again, just a few sentences. And you will realize real quick, okay, the point of this, the theme of this is bless. God wants to bless the families of the earth. Now, I dare you to turn, turn back one chapter. Go to Genesis 11. And you know what you will find there? Right before this promise to bless all the families of the earth, you'll find a little story. It's called the Tower of Babel. Are you familiar with that story? It's a famous little story. It's a great little story. You know, people get together and they say, we're going to build a big city, build rock in place all by our own sufficiency. And it's really typological as much as it's historical. It's this image of humanity saying, we don't need God. We don't need, to go- we don't need a God to define who we are. We don't need a God to define how to live. We can live by our own terms. We're pretty talented. We're pretty special. Look at what we can do. We've got technology. At that time, it's bricks. And they're like, this is pretty cool. Who needs God? And as a result of this, the next chapter is God, in response, is to bless. You see that? That's his response. We're trying to live life on our own terms. We can live here on earth however we want, apart from God. We don't need anybody telling us what to do, what we should be like. It's a story of radical selfishness, radical self-sufficiency, void of love. And God puts this plan in motion immediately following, a plan to rescue them, (laughs) a plan plan to love them and bring them back. And it's going to seem unbelievable because it, strangely enough, starts with an elderly family getting pregnant. That's weird. That's super weird. But that's how God works. And it took 25 years. You know that? 25 years for Isaac to show up. 25 years Abraham had to wait for that son. And if you're familiar with the story, he takes matters into his own hands, right? Him and his wife are like, well, this is kind of dragging on. How about you go sleep with this woman? Bad decision. And you know what's weird about God? He's not pleased with it at all. But you know what? He still blesses. He's kind. He sticks to his plan. No matter how many times we try to screw it up. Generation after generation goes by until this promise to bless all the families of the earth comes to a crescendo in who? Ta-da, Jesus. That's the Bible. Jesus is the ultimate promise of blessing. He's the son delivered to bring forgiveness and connection with God. He's the son that came to win you back. But what I want to call our attention to, and I've already mentioned it, is this glaring fact that God puts the whole plan in motion to bless us, to bring healing to earth, to to provide hope, to give us an opportunity at living forever with him as a direct response to our rebellion. We rebel 
we do bad things, we are unloving, we are deeply and radically selfish. And as a response to this, God says, I want to rescue and heal that. I want to love them anyway. I want to provide something so that they don't have to live that way. That's the kind of God you have. This has been the plan ever since Genesis 3. When we totally screwed up, God knew right then and there, even though our consequences for sin would wreck us, it would compromise the entire earth. He knew all of that, but he would make a way to heal the whole thing. This is the great misconception. This is my heartbeat. This is the great misconception of, in the world, and unfortunately the, un, the forgotten storyline even in the church, that God is unbelievably good to his creation even though we don't deserve it. It's called Grace. Does he quickly or exactly as we want him to uh, fix things? No. No. Absolutely not. In the same way Abraham had to wait uh, and he had to employ patience, in the same way um, God was doing things not according to Abraham's design, we too must learn patience. We too must learn to surrender to what God asks of us today, even when we have to wait. And it's difficult. But we can do it. And this is the point, if you know and you trust that he's good, he's not always understood. I admit that. The Bible admits that, that God is not always understood. That you always always make things super clear. People that have gone before us that you can read about in these stories, they will admit that. But history, not fairy tales, history testify to the fact that he is good. And he will make good on his promises. The more you rehearse his goodness, the more you will be challenged to grow. So I don't know what you're cycling through. I don't know what you're paying attention to. I don't know what you talk about with your friends. But I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to become someone that is attentive to God's goodness. When you are asked questions like, hey, what have you been up to lately? That's a God question. That's a holy question. You're like, what? It is if you make it. You can immediately in your mind be thinking, what has God been inviting me into? Where has God been this week? Have you been feeling lately? Well, I've just been stressing out about this this verse I've been studying. the, The people that you talk to are going to be like, oh my gosh person is like varsity christian no you're just someone who pays attention everything relates to god for you and if you do this it will change you radically shape you the more you you wake up if jesus is truly your hope friend it this isn't about being a member of the church If, if jesus is truly your hope if you know it in your bones if you've been Even if you've been inattentive this week, I get it. God graciously invites you to the table for the meal. That's what he does. And and we just have this opportunity week after week after week here in the Oaks. It's a little ritual of communion where we take two minutes, five minutes, whatever you need while we sing to pay attention, to give our attention to Jesus 
and to recognize that he, that's why he gave us this symbol, uh, this, this bread representing Christ's body broken, this cup of wine representing the new covenant in his blood that's poured out, that's shed. And we take a moment, and that's all we're doing. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. That's what the scriptures say. And so you're invited to come forward. Give attention to the fact that it's in Jesus that you have forgiveness. It's in Jesus that you have hope. It's in Jesus that you have a future. That's what he wants us thinking about. He doesn't want you thinking about all of your sin and how it will separate you from ever. He wants you thinking about that really quickly to then realize, wait, he is covering it. He is forgiving it. He is wiping it clean. And I can come to him, and I can rest in him, and I can have a future in him by no work of my own, but all of him. That's all you got to think about. That's it. Be attentive to him. Let us pray. Father, we are so glad. We are so glad that we are reminded today of the terrifying realities that we can be people that just lose thought that, that lose a sense of imagination, a sense of, a, of attention on the gospel. And even though that's a terrifying reality, God, we have the opportunity to wake up. We have an opportunity to say, wait, I, I want something different for my life. And so, God, I'm asking, as you permit and as you will, illuminate our hearts, illuminate our minds to your words. Give us help as we read them. Give us an ability to sit still some this week and pray. Give us an ability uh, to walk around at the office or at the home and just think about you. Fill our minds up with stories and ideas and beauties that all point to you. There's a giant canvas outside of these walls waiting, waiting for us to notice your beautiful creativity. And we give thanks for that. And Father, as we come to these little tables and taking a piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice. May we just simply stop for a moment and give thanks. We love you and we praise you. And we ask for your blessing as we leave this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen.